Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey there, this is Dylan Matthews, and I write for Vox about things like anti-poverty efforts, animal welfare, and the best ways to do philanthropy. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. So a few months ago, as 2020 was ending, I decided to look back at the work I'd done and count up all the articles I'd written. It turned out I wrote 94 articles that year, each of them making dozens of claims and arguments. And I thought to myself, some of those claims and arguments have to be wrong. I'm a human being. There's no way I'm batting a thousand. But how can I know which ones I got wrong? And how do I identify them and do better in the future without feeling like I'm a failure? Our guest this week is Julia Galef, who's a brilliant writer and friend of mine whose new book is all about this problem. It's called The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. And it's really a book about what kind of person we should try to be, a type of person who's more open to new evidence and ways of thinking, a type of person who doesn't delude herself. So Julia and I hopped on a call to talk about why what she calls scout mindset is so important, how it can help people in their everyday lives, and why it's so hard to cultivate. Well, welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you, Dylan. It's it's fun being interviewed by you instead of the other way around. I know. I've been your guest twice, and I I finally get to return the favor. Um, I really genuinely love this book. Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm not just podcast hosting you on that. Thank you. So for listeners who are new to it, walk me through what you mean by scout mindset. What does it mean to have it? How do you know if you have it? Oh, yeah, that'll that'll be a long walkthrough, but I'll I'll try to be as concise as I can. (laughs) So the scout mindset is the title of my book, and it's also my term for the motivation to see things as they are and not as you wish they were. So scout mindset can look like a lot of things. It could involve seeking out constructive feedback about how you're doing, you know, as a boss or as an employee or as a partner. Scout mindset could involve trying to understand the views of people who disagree with you instead of just being annoyed at their existence. Scout mindset could involve like trying to prove yourself wrong if you have some assumption about your business plan or politics, like going out and actually looking for evidence against it. Scout mindset can involve trying to have different levels of uncertainty about your different beliefs. So you're not 100% confident in everything, but trying to kind of adjust the strength of your belief to the strength of the evidence. There's lots more I could say, but that's kind of a a cross-section of the different facets of scout mindset. So basically being or trying to be intellectually honest and, you know, objective or fair-minded and just curious about what's actually true. And the reason I call it the scout mindset, it's part of kind of the framing metaphor of the book in which, by default, a lot of the time, we humans are in what I call soldier mindset, in which our motivation is basically to defend our beliefs against any evidence or arguments that might threaten them. And this term, I mean, it's a a term for other things that you've surely already heard of, like, you know, rationalization or denial or motivated reasoning or wishful thinking, these are all kind of facets of what I'm calling soldier mindset. But I adopted this term because the way that we talk about reasoning, just in the English language in general, is all this militaristic metaphor where like, 
we try to, you know, shore up our beliefs and and support them and buttress them as if they're fortresses. And we try to shoot down opposing arguments and we try to poke holes in the other side. And so I call this soldier mindset. And scout mindset is an alternative to that. It's a different way of thinking about what to believe or thinking about what's true. Um, And so the book is about why we're so often in soldier mindset and not scout mindset and why we should start shifting towards scout mindset instead um, and how to do that. Yeah, that's something I really appreciate about the book, that it's not fatalistic, that you sometimes read these pop psychology books about defects in human reasoning or cognitive biases, and they're sort of depressing and seem like there's no way out. But you have a lot of examples in the book of people acting as scouts and and using scout mindset to great effect. Right. Tell me a couple of your favorites. Um, I I have mine, but I'm curious which ones come to mind for you first. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what yours are as well. Uh, It's hard to pick a favorite. I often refer to scouts, but that's just sort of shorthand for people who are, you know, especially good at being in scout mindset, at least in some contexts. Uh, as I say in the book, no one is a perfect scout, um, just as no one is a pure soldier. We're all a mix of both. But some people are just better at being in scout mindset, at least in some contexts. And so I tried to include examples throughout the book of people being in scout mindset in uh, lots of different contexts, from science to exploration to even politics to business. And so I guess one of my favorite examples was kind of a dramatic story of an explorer uh, named Stephen Callahan, who went out sailing on a solo voyage in the Atlantic and his ship capsized. And so he was stuck out 1,400 miles away from the nearest land in this little life raft with very little food or water. And these kinds of life or death situations, they're ironically the kinds of situations where A, we especially need scout mindset to try to be as clear-eyed as we can about our situation and our choices and what we should do to have a better chance of staying alive. And B, these situations are also the ones in which people tend to be very tempted to engage in soldier mindset and try to, you know, convince themselves that it's going to be okay. Or sometimes the reverse, to try to convince themselves there's no hope and they might as well give up because it's too painful to you know, strive and hope and fear that, you know, it might all be in vain. And so Stephen Callahan. Uh, is really just an exemplary scout because he kept a memoir of his experience floating across the Atlantic Ocean for, it was, I think, 71 days um, he was adrift. And he wrote about it in his memoir called Adrift. And so you can just see his thought process as he thinks as objectively as he can about, okay, what is the probability that you know I'm going to run into a ship? What is the probability that a ship is going to spot me? How much water can I afford to consume a day? And so all of these really tough to think about decisions. He just goes through as clearly as he can in his mind. And he manages to avoid succumbing to the temptation of denial or motivated reasoning by finding ways to keep his spirits up that don't involve deceiving himself. So, you know, he comes to terms with the possibility that, yes, I might die out at sea, but I'm going to find a way to be okay with that possibility so that I don't feel the need to resist it. And I'm going to think about how can I make the best of this? Um, maybe I'll write a memoir so that if someone else in the future you know, finds the wreckage of my life raft, my memoir could be of service to other people in a similar situation in the future. And so I just, I found his story so inspiring and so, so touching that he, you know, was able to keep his vision clear by finding ways to satisfy those emotional needs that we all have, especially in situations as dire as a shipwreck, without succumbing to the temptation to deceive himself. So that's one. I, the other one I was going to bring up, if you could talk us through it a bit, I, I love the example of the Dreyfus Affair in French history, which is this fascinating episode. And the scout you've identified is kind of a loathsome figure in some ways. But Yeah, but, that's kind of why I chose him, actually. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly why he's so interesting. So yeah, tell us about him. Right. So this was this is something that happened in France in the late 19th century. It's called the Dreyfus Affair. Basically, what happened is a memo was found in a wastebasket written by someone in the French army addressed to the Germans. And it was basically divulging a bunch of top secret military plans. And so the French army discovered this memo and realized they had a spy in their ranks. And they launched this investigation to find the spy. And they quickly converged on an officer named Alfred Dreyfus, who was coincidentally the uh, only Jewish member of the top ranks of the French army. And so the officers who prosecuted Dreyfus, they genuinely believed that he was the spy. 
But their investigation, if you look at it from the outside, is clearly just incredibly slanted. They, you know, found any excuse they could to think the worst of him. They uh, ignored testimony from experts who said that Dreyfus's handwriting didn't match the memo. And they only trusted the experts who said that actually the handwriting did match the memo. So they convicted Dreyfus in this kind of soldier mindset, full investigation. And then about a year later, so Dreyfus is imprisoned on this rocky island, Devil's Island, across the sea. And the case is technically closed, even though Dreyfus has been maintaining his innocence the whole time. But then another officer gets promoted to the head of this investigative department. His name is Colonel Picard. And he is anti-Semitic, just like his fellow officers were. That was just kind of the norm in France at the time. Um, and he didn't like Dreyfus, and he had all of the same biases that his fellow officers did. But he also just had a much stronger drive to, you know, recognize and pursue the truth than his other fellow officers did. And so when he took command of this department and he started looking into the investigation that had been conducted into Dreyfus, he went through all this evidence and realized, wait, this is a really flimsy case. We just don't have a strong case against this guy. I think we might have just convicted an innocent man. And so he's really worried and he starts going around to his fellow officers and asking them about that. And they just kept kind of dismissing his concerns and rationalizing away the inconsistencies he'd found. And this just made him really angry. And so he kept pursuing it and pursuing it. And it took many years. Uh, and the army actually tried to shut him up by putting him in jail uh, as well. But eventually, Colonel Picard managed to get Dreyfus exonerated and... Dreyfus was reinstated back in the army. And so Colonel Picard is just, he's a hero to me because even though he was an anti-Semite, which as you say, makes him kind of a loathsome figure, in a way that I think makes his scout mindset even more admirable because like his love for the truth was so strong that it was able to outweigh his personal biases against Dreyfus and his personal biases towards, you know, preserving his job and his reputation and so on. So I see him as kind of an especially striking example of scout mindset, especially contrasted against the soldier mindset of his fellow officers. For sure. So a, another sort of villain in the book uh, who comes up quite a lot is is Spock from Star Trek. And <laughs> I really love that you did this in part because you, you've written a lot about what it means to be rational and, and reasoning. And, and Spock is such a cultural touchstone for what rationality means to a lot of people. And he really does not come across as a good scout in your estimation. Why is he bad at it? Yeah, he's like a caricature of what rationality or a logical approach to life actually is, um, because in many ways, he's not logical at all. <laughs> and, and so he's held up kind of as a straw man of logical thinking, or as some would say, a straw Vulcan. <laughs> um, and then the terrible failures of his thinking are then used as a way for the show to say, see, logic and rationality aren't so good after all. And so one reason I'm always picking on Spock in my book and in talks I've given is that I, I kind of want to combat this image of the straw Vulcan, which I think a lot of pop culture and society has of, you know, oh, this is what reasoning is supposed to look like if you're being logical. So one of the facets of Scout Mindset that I talk about in the book is having the right level of confidence in your beliefs. So when you're really confident in something, that something's going to happen, then it usually does. And when you're you know, really confident something's not going to happen, then it doesn't. Um, at least striving for that level of, uh, as I say in the book, calibration and having that kind of be your North Star. So I have a chapter about calibration and kind of having the right level of uncertainty in your various beliefs. And so to illustrate the principle of what calibration is, I went through Spock's entire track record throughout all of the episodes of Star Trek and the movies and searched for any instances I could in which Spock made a prediction. So I looked for words like where Spock was saying probably or almost definitely, or sometimes he actually gave a number, like there is a 99.8976% probability that we will not escape. So then I recorded all of these predictions Spock made, and then I recorded, well, what actually happened? Did they in fact escape? And, you know, with all this data, I think there were 20 some instances I found that fit these criteria. I was able to plot on a graph Spock's rough prediction of the likelihood of an event and then whether or not that event actually happened. And um, spoiler, Spock is not very well calibrated. <laughs> in fact, 
for the most part, his predictions are anti-correlated with reality. So when he expresses high confidence that something will happen, it rarely does. When he expresses high confidence that something won't happen, it usually does. Yeah, so that's one way in which Spock is not being a great scout. And then I also pick on him later in the book when I'm talking about curiosity, because he makes these kind of confident statements about how things will go. Like in one episode, he says, you know, well, if we fire off a couple of warning shots, then the restless natives around us will run away scared and they won't attack us. And so they do that. And then the natives get angry at the show of violence and they attack. And the point that I was trying to make in that chapter is that when the world confounds your expectations, you should notice that and be curious about that. And as I say, lean into your confusion, because often those kinds of surprising or confusing bits of data from the world are what lead you to a new and more, you know, richer and more accurate perspective on the world. And Spock does not do this. So when the natives, you know, fail to run away as he predicted, uh, and his shipmate takes him to task for his mistake, he just shrugs and he says, well, that wasn't very rational of them. I'm not responsible for their unpredictability. <laughs> and he fails to be curious at all about why he was wrong. And if you start, you know, instead trying to understand why people don't behave the way you expect them to or the way you think they should, quote unquote, rationally, then, you know, you can actually improve your models of people over time. And Spock doesn't do this. So I should stop there. I could rant about Spock for <laughs> many hours, but I don't think you want me to do that. Well, it's, I, I think it's an interesting case because you're... Like, I think the concept of rationality is really important to you and I think your overall project. When I first met you, you were doing kind of seminars and workshops right. that were trying to help people notice their cognitive biases, think more rationally, sort of use better reasoning methods in their own lives. And one of the things that was really interesting to me about the book is you seem a little bit disillusioned from that project that you mentioned at some point that just telling people they have these biases isn't enough for them to change, that it's about cultivating this bigger attitude toward the world. Right. Is that right? Can you tell us kind of a story of the evolution of your thinking on this and, and sort of how you came to the conclusion you have in the book? Right. Yeah. So I back in 2012, I co-founded this educational nonprofit called the Center for Applied Rationality. Um, and I helped run it for several years. And part of what we did was running these workshops where we tried to take concepts from cognitive science, but also from like basic economic theory and even philosophy and use those concepts to help people improve their reasoning and decision making in their own lives and their careers and relationships and things like that. And originally I had I had envisioned this project as being about kind of giving people knowledge. <laughs> like here is, you know, the five-step process that you should go through to figure out like whether your action is net positive or here is, you know, a list of the top 10 most common cognitive biases that impact our decision making. My assumption was that like having that knowledge would equip people to make better decisions and so on. And I mean, it's so often the case that when you try to describe a thing you were wrong about in the past, it seems kind of obvious. <laughs> and so maybe what I'm saying is going to sound obvious, but like if you think about the people you've seen online who know a lot of cognitive biases and logical fallacies, and you just ask yourself, like, do these people tend to be really like self-reflective and <laughs> notice, oh, I was engaging in a logical fallacy there. Sorry about that. I don't think they usually do. Like for the most part, the people I see who talk a lot about people engaging in cognitive biases and fallacies prefer to point out those biases and fallacies in other people. That's kind of like how they wield that knowledge. And so, you know, to a somewhat lesser extent, like even when you're motivated to try to improve your own reasoning and decision-making, just having the knowledge itself isn't all that effective. The bottleneck is more like wanting to notice the things that you're wrong about, wanting to see the ways in which your decisions have been imperfect in the past and wanting to change it. So I just started shifting my focus more to, you know, the motivation to see things clearly instead of uh, the knowledge and, I don't know, education part of it. Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, are there certain contexts where it might make more sense to adopt the soldier mindset rather than the scout mindset? Like, for instance, in the cutthroat competitive atmosphere of a tech startup, or Silicon Valley in general, for that matter. I'll ask Julia what she thinks after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? 
that's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's really interesting since so much of the book is about motivation and also about not deluding yourself. And this argument you come up against again and again in the book is that you need to be a little irrational to motivate yourself. Right. You talk a lot about being based in the Bay. Everyone's doing a startup. And there's this view that you have to have totally convinced yourself that you're going to be creating the next Apple, even if there's no realistic chance of that. But you have to believe that if it's going to succeed. You talk a bit about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and why they thought their companies would fail. I'm curious, one, if you could tell that story and, and walk through why someone would start a company they think would fail. But also, I'm, I'm a little curious if you might be doing a little selecting on the dependent variable here. Of you're, you're taking a few people who are really successful and looking at what they have in common. And I'm, I'm curious, like, do we know if you compared people going into, say, a venture capital firm and you compared the big, overly optimistic dreamers with the hard-headed realists that the realists do better, what do we actually know about the utility of this sort of hyper-optimist mindset? That is a great question. I look forward to getting to that. I'll first explain like why I bring up Bezos and Musk in the book <laughs> for sure, and what I think we learned from them. So there's basically two ways in which people think soldier mindset is actually better if you want to be a successful entrepreneur. One way is that people believe soldier mindset is motivating. So if you're overconfident, if you delude yourself into thinking, you know, this little startup of mine is going to be the next Apple, I just know it, it's definitely going to happen. If you believe that, it's, you know, not rationally justified, but it's going to motivate you to work really hard and to persevere when things get tough. And that's really valuable when you're trying to do something hard, like starting a startup. And then the other reason that people think soldier mindset is better than scout mindset for someone like an entrepreneur is because of its effect on the people around you. So the idea is, if you believe in yourself 110% and you, you know, show no doubt in your business idea, no doubt in your own capabilities, then that just makes you really influential. It makes people want to invest in your company, makes people want to work for you, it makes the media want to like pay attention to you and follow you. Um, and that's really important for an entrepreneur. So those are the two objections to scout mindset in this context. And so I kind of assumed when I started out writing the book that this was probably true and I was just going to have to, you know, eh, this is just an unfortunate trade-off in the world that scout mindset isn't always that effective and can have these downsides. Then I started doing some research for the book, um, both reading academic studies and just looking at a bunch of real-world examples and digging into the details. Uh, and I ended up concluding that it isn't actually that true and that, in fact, there are some very prominent examples, as you noted, of entrepreneurs who were very motivated to make their company succeed and did, in fact, experience success, all the while being very clear-eyed and realistic about their chances of success uh, and even saying as much to the people around them. And so Bezos and Musk are two of my main examples of scout-like entrepreneurs, or at least scout-like in some ways. As I say, not everyone is a scout <laughs> all the time or about everything. And I'm sure you can find counterexamples in both of them. But in these specific ways, so 
when Bezos was starting, like deciding to start Amazon, he asked himself, what is the probability that my company is going to succeed? And his estimate was about 30%. It was a rough guess, but he was basing that on the fact that about 10% of tech startups were successful. And he was like, well, I think I'm you know, really smart and skilled and I think my idea is good, but I still have to adjust upwards from the baseline of 10%. So let's say 30%. And then Elon Musk, the odds he gave to both Tesla and SpaceX starting out was about 10% chance for each of them of success. And so, you know, when people like interviewers hear Musk and Bezos talk about these odds, they always express puzzlement. Like, why would you start a company if you thought it was probably going to fail? And the answer that both of them gave in different ways was the expected value. (laughs) The expected value is really high. Like, roughly estimating how good it would be if I succeeded, it would be amazing. Um, And then thinking about how bad would it be if I failed? Well, you know, I could live with it. Like Bezos actually said, you know, if I was 80 and I looked back at this company I started and it had failed, I would still feel good about that choice because at least I had tried and at least I had participated in this exciting new world of internet commerce. So, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And so if you have a prospect that has a 10 or a 30% chance of an amazing outcome, and a 70 or a 90% chance of a tolerable outcome. And especially if you can afford to make a few of those bets in your life, that's actually, that's like a pretty good bet to make. And so that kind of expected value reasoning is what I found in a bunch of examples I looked at, scouts were able to motivate themselves with, even while being very clear-eyed about the very real possibility that their company was going to fail. So that's one side of the equation. And then I'll just briefly say that Bezos especially was very clear with all of his investors and employees from day one that he thought Amazon was probably going to fail. And based on the common wisdom, you might assume that this would make them see him as unconfident and not want to follow him. Clearly, that didn't actually happen. And what I argue in the book is that that's because expressing certainty in your beliefs is not actually the key ingredient in being influential or persuasive. A much more important ingredient is just what I call social confidence. So, you know, speaking in a confident tone, looking like relaxed and like you're at ease in social situations, you're comfortable speaking to groups, you're the kind of person who goes out and takes charge and makes things happen. Those are the things that people talk about when they talk about why they invested in Amazon in the first place. And those things don't have to go along with claiming you're 110% confident in your company. So you can, I think Bezos is a nice existence proof that you can be intellectually honest about the real challenges and uncertainties and still be extremely influential if you have this thing I'm calling social confidence. So I'll stop there. That's a taste of what I think we can learn from the examples of Bezos and Musk against the kind of common wisdom that you need soldier mindset. For sure. So yeah, you you do this analysis of Bezos and Musk that's really interesting. Sometimes statisticians talk about selecting on the dependent variable, yeah. which is when you're looking for the outcome you want, like being a successful entrepreneur and then examining what those have in common, as opposed to looking at the whole pool of people who tried to start companies and comparing the hard-headed realists, uh, the Bezos and Musk types against everyone else. Do we really know much at that stage? Maybe the other dreamer category has produced all these other billionaires and you you don't see that if you just look at the two guys at the top of the wealth charts. Yeah, it's funny actually hearing you make that point because that's I've made that same point in the other direction that like often when people point to examples of super successful billionaires who are, you know, overconfident or delusional. Um, I'm like, well, you're kind of selecting on the dependent here. (laughs) So that completely agreed. That is one of the many reasons why it's really hard to draw confident conclusions here about the strength of the effect and which direction it goes. Other reasons, including like, well, how do you measure overconfidence? Like, you would expect that people who have reason to be confident, people whose ideas really are good, you know, even if they're perfect scouts, they're going to be more confident than people who don't have good reason to believe in themselves. So there's all kinds of, you know, messy interdependencies, and it's really hard to get good data. So all of that is to say that I basically didn't try in the book. I didn't try to argue that if you use scout mindset, you will be a more successful entrepreneur. What I feel I can confidently claim is that you don't have to use soldier mindset Like, there are examples, there are many examples of successful entrepreneurs who used scout mindset. And kind of the broader message that I'm trying to communicate in the book is that 
anytime it seems to you that you need soldier mindset and like you need soldier mindset to be confident or you need soldier mindset to be happy, more often than not, there's a way to get those things like the confidence or the happiness without sacrificing your ability to see clearly. I'm not going to deny that the soldier mindset approach can work. Like there's certainly entrepreneurs out there who were delusionally overconfident and they succeeded. It's just that it comes with these unfortunate downsides where, you know, you're not letting yourself think clearly about the possible risks facing you. You're not letting yourself admit the uncertainty in your plans, possibly missing the ways that your plan could be improved. And so that's an unfortunate downside of soldier mindset. And so I think it's really worth looking for ways to get the things that we want in life without making that sacrifice to our judgment. For sure. And and you make a kind of similar point about activism, which is another place where kind of strong optimism is really valued and, and optimism untethered from sort of hard-headed analyses of the current situation is considered really valuable. Right. I sometimes get into debates with friends on the left about like defunding the police, say. And I will observe that I don't see any cities that are actually abolishing their police departments and it doesn't seem likely and, and maybe you should focus on smaller reforms. And their rebuttal is always, you know, we're activists. It's our job to dream the impossible. Right. And Martin Luther right. King probably didn't see Jim Crow tumbling down when he started. You have some examples in the book, but I'm, I'm curious what your case for scout mindset for activists is. Is this a case where you have a grudging exception or what are ways in which scout mindset could help someone in that situation as opposed to trimming their sails too much? Right. So this is another common objection that I encountered. I, this is one reason it took me so long to write the book is that I I spent so long like hunting down and just really chewing over all of the possible objections someone could have to my thesis. <laughs> A good instance of scout mindset, yeah, actually. actually. To be honest, <laughs> scout mindset did help me in, well, I guess I, I don't know that it helped me in writing a book that would be successful, but it at least helped me in writing a book that I could feel good about <laughs> in the end. And yeah, and like really thinking about all the possible objections and revising my thesis and response, I think really helped. But yeah, so with activism, the objection is, you know, I, I talk about this in the section of the book about identity and how beliefs can become part of our identity, our beliefs about politics or about what programming language to use or about whether women should breastfeed or bottle feed. These kinds of beliefs and many more can become part of our identity in the sense that when they're criticized, we take it personally and we take umbrage and we you know, are really motivated to fight back and to collect any evidence that could defend these beliefs that have become part of our identity. And so I argue in the book that it'd be better to hold our identities lightly so that we don't feel so motivated to defend them against criticism. And then the counter to this is that, sure, that's all very well and good for many people. But if you want to be an activist, if you want to change the world, then this kind of black and white self-righteous thinking where, you know, your beliefs are good and true and the other side is evil that's actually really helpful because, you know, it's what motivates you to go out there and keep striving with passion. It's very similar to the entrepreneur argument, actually, because activists are also trying to do something really hard that the world is kind of against and that they maybe don't have a lot of support for at first. So the question is, you know, if you're an activist, should you be in soldier mindset? So I allow in the book that the kind of passion that comes from a soldier approach to activism can be motivating in the sense that it can drive you to take action. And the problem is just that not all actions are equal. And so I break it down in the book into like two axes and I kind of plot different possible actions you could take on these two axes. Um, one of the axes is how validating of your identity is this action? And the other axis is how impactful is it? Like how much does it actually accomplish in the world? And so some actions are really validating for your identity, but not very impactful. Like, I don't know, arguing with strangers on the internet um, and posting about how wrong everyone else is. This is very validating if you're being motivated by identity, but it's not very impactful. Uh, and then on the flip side, some actions that are extremely impactful for the goal you purport to have are not really all that satisfying or validating if what you care about is fueling that sense that you are good and righteous and on the side of you know the virtue. For example... I talk in the book about the Humane League, which I think you've written about, Dylan. Yeah, no, They're big fan. A, an amazing animal welfare organization that pivoted. Originally, they had been focused on these kinds of attention-grabbing demonstrations outside the homes of scientists who worked on lab animals. And then their new director came in, David Komen-Heidi, and he kind of pivoted the organization instead 
towards farm animal welfare based on a pretty simple like impact calculation of, you know, the number of animals we could possibly help if we focus on farm animals is just many orders of magnitude larger than lab animals. And so instead, the organization switched to negotiating with the biggest agricultural producers in the world to improve their treatment of animals. For example, not throwing male chicks into a grinder after they're born because they can't lay eggs. And they, they've been pretty amazingly successful in like winning concessions from these companies. But that action of like negotiating with these companies you hate who are doing things you think are terrible, that's not a very validating, like it's not a very satisfying thing to do if what you're motivated by is the feeling that you're like standing up for good and fighting the bad guys. Uh, and in fact, a lot of other like activists in the animal rights and animal welfare space hate that and don't think that anyone should negotiate at all. But, you know, it's been really successful. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that if you're motivated by impact, like if what is driving you is, I really just want to fix this terrible thing I see happening in the world, or I really just want to create this good thing in the world. If you're motivated by impact, then you don't necessarily need soldier mindset. And scout mindset is what's going to help you make these calculations about what is actually the most impactful thing for me to do, which strategy is going to you know, lead to the best results. Do I need to like give up the strategy that I've invested all of this time and emotional energy in for the last two years because there's a better alternative? Those are the kinds of questions that are hard to think about clearly if you're in soldier mindset, but those are the kinds of questions that actually really matter when it comes to picking effective strategies. I really love the section of the book about identity and it I think listeners to this podcast, which used to be hosted by Ezra Klein, will recognize a lot of themes from his work on polarization. And it's something that I, as someone who writes about politics, notice myself doing from time to yeah. time. I recently started sort of volunteering doing taxes, and I keep noticing things that Trump did to the tax code that I kind of like. Oh, really? Like the the child tax credit is double what it was before. Did you him. hear that sound, Dylan? That was like 300 subscribers just hitting unsubscribe. <laughs> I I like to think my followers have put up with much worse. Um but 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 it was hard to admit that to myself. I thought of myself as really anti-Trump and that was just a hurdle to get over. And so it's it's interesting to me that at the end of the book, uh you talk about how scout could be an identity, that that could be something that motivates people the way like that identifying as a liberal or a feminist or a Christian can motivate people. I'm sort of curious how you see that working. Uh, isn't there a danger that it would cause some of the same problems and scouts might be less likely to critique each other or more smug about critiques from outsiders than, than if they didn't really see themselves as a unified community? So the trick is just defining your identity, like choosing the things you're going to pride yourself on strategically so that the things that you're rewarding yourself for with you know pride or satisfaction and the things that the people around you are rewarding you for are the things that are actually helpful for seeing things clearly and changing your mind and all that good stuff. So if there are aspects of your identity that are not helping with that, I don't know, like if you're priding yourself on always, you know, having the right answer or something, I think that's an unhelpful kind of identity to have because as you say, that sort of thing is going to disincentivize you from noticing when actually this time you're not right. But if you define your identity carefully, and pride yourself instead on your ability to admit when you're wrong and pride yourself on your ability to distinguish between different levels of certainty in your beliefs. I think that like the incentives line up, making these kinds of habits and tools much easier to pick up and sustain um, because you're actually feeling, feeling good when you use them instead of you know feeling bad that you proved yourself wrong. Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, even if I can kind of sort of intellectually get behind a lot of what Julia's saying, I still worry that it might be hard to put that into practice. Like, how do you be a scout? How do you be cool, judicious, and collected when someone's being wrong on the internet? That's after the break. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? 
Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Eurovision. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. I think the thing that's tricky to me about trying to be a scout, and I'm a very imperfect scout, is knowing what to listen to and what not to. That you and I both write on the internet, and so I get tons of mail, hate, and otherwise. I get lots of sort of Twitter comments and whatever. And early in my career, I tried not to filter any of it out, since I thought, yeah, some of them will be mean, but I'm not behaving rationally if I'm discounting people just because I don't like their tone. And so if uh, someone says something about, uh, say, the Gates Foundation that makes something of a point and then says I should die in a fire, I should focus on on the point and uh, ignore that they told me to die in the fire. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of curious how you, just as a person on the internet, as a woman on the internet who's probably subject to more of that kind of abuse than I am, deal with that and, and sort of sort through the good faith critiques from bad actors who seem to be more more and more prevalent every day. Yeah, I mean, so I feel very grateful, actually, for my audience, generally speaking, like the people who follow me on Twitter and people who listen to my podcast and I know, watch my YouTube videos and so on, because I feel like to a greater extent than normal, they reward me for the right things and they punish me for the right things. There have been some times when I've, I feel like I've fallen short of my standards and like, argued with someone who was not actually worth arguing with or gotten defensive or made a claim that I couldn't justify. And my followers like pushed back. Mm. And I think it's really valuable to cultivate the kind of community slash audience that is going to reward you for the things that actually make you a better thinker um, instead of rewarding you for the things that just kind of confirm their own beliefs or biases. That's part of it, I think, is it's really helpful having an audience that rewards the right things. And then, you know, in terms of how I process the various arguments that get thrown at me online, I think it's important to not feel obliged to engage with everyone because what ends up happening then is you just get so jaded by all of the bad faith critiques that just kind of reinforces in yourself the idea that everyone who disagrees with me is stupid and a troll because those are the people you're spending all your time on. Noah Smith has talked about this, how he, this was a big realization for him that, you know, you need to start blocking liberally because if you block <laughs> the jerks and the bad faith arguers, then you're left with the people who are disagreeing with you in good faith and making reasonable points, even if you don't always agree with them. Um, and that's, it's just so much easier to listen to. It's like so much easier to be open to. I've kind of lowered my standards for what I count as a good faith argument over time because I was worried I was blocking out too many things. So there's all these markers of what I would consider a good faith argument, like, you know, not strawmanning the other side and not overstating your case and so on and so forth. And it's it's a pretty stringent list. And this, this was kind of the list I was judging people by. And so now I use this kind of like bare minimum criterion for good faith. As long as they're not like hurling insults at me and as long as they do at least like one or two signs of good faith, even if they're not doing most of them, then I consider them like worth listening to and I'm going to try to hear what they have to say. You know, it's kind of ironic. Like people feel like the way to be open-minded is just to listen to everyone. And I think that this seriously backfires because they end up getting exposed just disproportionately to the people who want to yell at them online. <laughs> Yeah. It's funny you bring up that Noah policy since I've thought about that as yeah. well. And then I, I always <laughs> I sometimes joke with people that the Internet is a competition to see who can seem the least mad. Yeah. And and I, I always worry that if I block lots of people, they'll be like, well, he's really mad. He's blocking all these people. You know, that's one reason 
I actually talk about this policy because, I mean, partly I talk about it because I feel like it's a good principle and more people should know about it. But I think on some level, I also talk about it because then if I do block someone, people will be like, oh yeah, Julia has this policy. Right. It's not just her getting mad. <laughs> You're not like the reign of terror executing Right, people. right. <laughs> you just block a lot of them. I'm, I'm blocking them for the sake of reason and truth. Absolutely. <laughs> as, as Rose Pierre would like. Um, wait. <laughs> wait. <laughs> Um, so, so one of the hardest parts of being a scout, it seems, is, is making sure that you're distinguishing praise for your position that's good from praise that's sort of confirmation bias and that you're only believing because it's flattering to you. And this seems like something that's particularly dangerous if being a scout becomes a kind of identity. They're not coterminous, but some of what is sometimes described as the rationalism community and its close cousin, the effective altruism world, to some degree, define themselves as as using rigor and evidence more than other people. And so there's always this danger that I feel as someone who identifies as an EA that I'll read something flattering to my, my EA prejudices and I'll believe it not because it's good evidence, but because I feel this identity. Yeah. I felt this, just to give it a concrete example, when there was a, a whole news cycle about Scott Alexander, who's someone you and I both know, who's a, a big EA and rationalist writer, uh, who I'm a great fan of. And I saw sort of critical coverage of him. And I had some problems with the coverage on the substance, but I felt this instinctive initial like, no, Scott's a good guy. I, I got to protect Scott. Scott's one of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really scared of that impulse. And so how do you make sure that you're not just sort of undergoing confirmation bias when you're building out your scout identity and distinguishing good praise from dubious praise? Well, I'll ask you, how do you feel when in those instances when you do actually admit to yourself, oh, actually, this point in defense of, you know, EA or whatever other tribe, this point actually doesn't hold up or, you know, this critique of EA is makes some good points. In those moments, how do you feel? Do you feel, you know? Um... I feel sort of stressed briefly, but then it tends to turn into sort of if I think it over and I am comfortable with the conclusion I come to, I come to a kind of peace with it. That maybe I read something saying that effective altruists don't take structural change to governments seriously enough. And I think, okay, maybe they have a point, but structural change is really hard. And so I can integrate that into how I think this way. That brings me a kind of peace when I can kind of reconcile right. it. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty similar to my experience, too. And sometimes I'll just look ahead to that point. I, I have a chapter in the book on, like, how to make yourself more receptive to, you know, unpleasant or inconvenient truths or, you know, things that might be true. And the point is to, like, give them serious consideration so you can decide if they are true. And so a common theme in that advice is to, before you try to think about whether the thing is true. First, imagine that it's true and then ask yourself, like, how bad would that be? Like, what would I do? And this certainly applies to real-world decision-making in tough situations like Stephen Callahan and his boat in the Atlantic, (laughs) where you have to, you know, make plans for what you would do if the worst-case scenario happened. And just the making of the plans themselves can be comforting and, you know, not necessarily make the bad possibility palatable, but at least make it tolerable enough that you're willing to think clearly about it and consider if it's true. Um, and I think the same principle applies, you know, in the slightly less dramatic example of like reading criticism of your tribe on the internet, where, you know, sometimes if I'm reading criticism and I'm feeling, you know, stressed out and defensive, and I'm, I notice that I'm like reaching for rebuttals of it, Or similarly, if I'm reading praise of my community and I notice that I'm like really motivated to accept it, as you were saying, um, I will just stop and and imagine like, what if I found out that this praise was actually unjustified? Or what if I found out that this critique was actually solid? You know, how bad would that be? And what I realized in that moment is like, I guess that'd be okay. Like that's happened before wasn't the end of the world. Like, here's what I would say on Twitter, like in response to the article, here's how I would acknowledge that they made a good point. And and this happens just in like a few seconds in my head, but just like going through that exercise of how bad would it be and like picturing the outcome often makes me realize like, okay, it'd be fine. It'd be fine if this turned out to not support my side. Um, And then once I've like reached that state of pre-acceptance, then I'm able to actually think about whether or not it's justified. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, no, it seems like a healthy process. Yeah, well, 
one likes to think so. <laughs> I wanted to end with something of a harder question, or maybe it's an easy question. We've known each other for a while now. You read my writing sometimes. How can I be better at being a scout? What kinds of mistakes do I make that seem soldier mindset-y or veer from scout best practices? Oh, God. I mean, I wouldn't follow you and be friends with you if I thought you weren't a great scout. <laughs> so it like, shouldn't be surprising if I have a hard time coming up with something. Sure. But but I I mean this sincerely, since I think part of the point of the book is that to be a good scout, you have to be aware of your faults and, and your shortcomings. And you write a lot in the book about how we're, we're programmed to deceive ourselves about things. And and so there's almost certainly some things that I'm not going to notice about myself that I'm doing as a matter of habit. And you as a smart person who thinks about these things, I, I'm just kind of curious. I, like I'm impressed with the question. I am like <laughs> genuinely having a hard time coming up with things. The only thing I can think of, uh, and I'm afraid this might sound a bit like a cop out, but the best I can come up with right now. You're quite like funny on Twitter, um, like in a snarky way sometimes. And that doesn't necessarily have to involve like caricaturing views or ignoring nuance or something. It doesn't necessarily have to involve that, but it is like easy to slide because it just, sure. you know, sometimes the joke kind of requires like a misreading of something or, and I get or that. Or a caricature I do, of it. Right. Or, yeah. yeah. I totally get that. <laughs> and when you're good at being funny, I, I'm sure the temptation is even stronger. But I guess, like, if I had to give some advice, it would just be to, like, when you're being funny, to just do an extra double check. Like, am I missing something or misreading something? And then you can go ahead and make the joke if you want. But then at least you're not, like, missing the nuance am, in am the I service of the joke. This? Yeah, something like that. Yes. Uh, that's the best I got. That's a very kind critique. And I think my my wife would disagree that anything I say on Twitter is funny. <laughs> but I, 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 it was very generous of you to offer that. <laughs> well, thanks for asking. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's I, again, really genuinely like the book, and it's a rare book that makes me want to be a better person. So thank, thank you, you so much. That. That's just so great to hear, Dylan. Thank you. And, uh, and I loved doing the interview with you. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Monsi mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have any ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. And one more thing. How would you like to produce this show or other Vox Talk podcasts? We're looking for a producer and an editorial director to join the Vox Audio team. Learn more and apply at vox.com forward slash careers. That's vox.com forward slash careers.